and welcome to Out of the Archive Box, a podcast from the team here at the Borthwick Institute for Archives at the University of York. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories, insights and discoveries from the many fascinating archives held here. In this episode, we'll be bringing you tales from the early days of the railways as seen through some remarkable correspondence and find out how one of the most famous railway towns in England got its name. But first... What is the Borthwick and, well, who am I? Uh, The Borthwick Institute for Archives is the archives at the University of York and I'm Gary and I'm Keeper of Archives and Special Collections here. My job, along with my brilliant team, is to collect, preserve and make available all sorts of archives. The Borthwick story is one for a future episode, but in summary we've been collecting and caring for archives since 1953 and we're one of the largest archives outside of London. Our mission is to support and expand the University of York's cultural endeavour and contribute to human understanding through collecting archives, preserving them and making them widely available for research to all people now and in the future. And we do that in a lot of ways. Teaching, research, inquiries, copying and digitisation services, conservation, digital preservation, cataloguing and now podcasting. And in the future you'll be hearing a lot more about all of those things. We hold a huge range of archives, records of medieval archbishops, chocolate makers, playwrights, dramatists, comedians, scientists, politicians, hospitals, architects, gardeners, vicars, clergy, vicars, instruments, designers, wildlife and environmental groups, and the records of hundreds of thousands of people who lived, loved and worked in York, Yorkshire and around the globe. Our holdings span nearly a thousand years of history and touch upon nearly 50 countries around the world. And within all of these are surprising, engaging, emotional stories and experiences that tell us who we were, who we are, and who we might become. In this episode, Sally Ann Shearn, our collections development archivist, delves into the correspondence of Annabella Crew, to be found in the archive of the Milnes Coates family, and discovers more about the history of the early railways in The Fiery Rail, The Crew Family, and The Coming of the Railway. <laughs> Hello, I'm here to talk to you about trains. I should really start by saying that this is not my area of expertise, but my aim is not to give a potted history of the early railway in Britain, that's already been done many times over, but rather to share the experiences of one particular family whose surname has become indelibly linked to this particular transport revolution. So who were the crews and why do I want to talk about them? In my day job, I'm an archivist at the Borthwick Institute in York, and two years ago I had a small eight-week gap between projects that I needed to fill. My boss suggested I have a look at some Victorian letters which had come to us as part of an archive of a woman called Lady Celia Milnes Coates. The letters were by Lady Celia's grandmother Annabel, and there were just over 1,000 of them in total. It won't surprise you to learn that being given eight weeks to do nothing but read interesting historical letters is something of an archivist's dream. As I read each letter and wrote a short summary of its contents, I became completely absorbed by the lives of Annabelle and her family and friends, and as any of my colleagues can tell you, my research into the crews has continued ever since, and if anything, I'm even more enthusiastic about them now than I was then. Let me quickly introduce you to the key characters, the three crew siblings at the heart of the correspondence. The eldest, Henrietta, born in 1808, was the quiet one who hated her London season with a passion and actually left the country for six years to avoid having to have another. 
Then there's a difficult middle child, an only son and heir, Hungerford, born in 1812, who is remembered by family and friends as somewhat eccentric. Hungerford was said to be so shy that he would sooner stick his face into a holly bush than greet a party of his neighbours. But nonetheless, he was close to his sisters and brought them a great deal of entertainment. Finally, there is Annabel herself, the youngest of the family, born in 1814. Annabel was a talented artist and loved to travel. She was also the only one of the siblings to marry, marrying Richard Monckton Milnes, the ex-suitor of Florence Nightingale, in 1851. Richard is incidentally the author of the poem The Fiery Rail, which I used in the title of this podcast. Henrietta, Hungerford and Annabel were the children of John Crewe and his wife Henrietta, a wealthy heiress, and the grandchildren of the first Baron Crewe of Crewe Hall in the county of Cheshire. The letters kept by Annabel discuss just about every subject you can think of, from births, marriages and deaths, religion, politics and the most private thoughts and feelings of the correspondents, to society gossip, fashion and what they thought of the latest play or novel. One letter even speculates on the identity of the mysterious Brodie sisters, who were rumoured to have written Jane Eyre in Wuthering Heights from their remote home in Scotland. Above all, I discovered that then, as now, people loved to talk about travel and complain about their terrible journeys, usually in pages and pages of detail. And I soon became unexpectedly invested in the inconveniences of travelling by horse and coach and the mixed dangers and blessings of the newfangled railroad. Indeed, it would be hard for the crews to miss the development and impact of the railroad, since it happened practically on their doorstep. The three had grown up in the Cheshire countryside. At the time of their births, there was no town of Crewe at all, only the mansion of Crewe Hall, which stood in extensive parkland, and a small village adjacent that had only around 300 inhabitants in 1831. Their nearest town was Nantwich, four miles away. This was to change pretty dramatically over the course of their lifetimes, due entirely to the coming of the railway and the development of Crewe as a major railway hub. By 1848, that village of 300 people had become a rapidly growing town of 8,000, and Crewe Hall now stood less than two miles away from a large, busy and noisy railway works. The surviving letters span the whole of this development, beginning in the age of the horse and ending in the age of steam. Although Victorian ideas of horses living lives of leisure as a result of the railway did not quite come to pass. The letters give a real sense of changing attitudes to rail travel, and a kind of view from the front lines of early railway travel with all its excitement and danger. For the rest of this podcast, I want to share some of these insights with you, and then speculate on what exactly the crews may have thought of crew. We first meet the crews in 1829, a year before the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, the first intercity passenger railway, opened to the public. The humble horse and carriage was the usual way to travel, and long journeys could begin in the early hours of the morning and continue all day. One journey taken by Henrietta across Belgium and France to Calais in January 1832 gives an idea of how uncomfortable and even dangerous this could be. Her day began at 3.30am with an overloaded coach that she wrote was crammed and loaded in a way of which you can form no idea both inside and out. 
Before they even left the courtyard, they discovered the impossibility of opening and shutting the carriage door without two men applying their whole weight to the carriage wheel to drag it back. They finally set off and made reasonable progress towards Brussels, a journey of around 60 miles, and then the rumble-tumble broke. This was a sort of basket attached to the back of the coach that was often used as a seat, and the two men servants sitting in it ended up entering Brussels with their heads back and their knees in the air. The coach took all night to repair, and they have further problems when they reach France with a drunk coachman and a vicious horse that bit one of the servants and tried to bolt, taking all their luggage with it. All in all, it took them from 10am until 5am the following morning to reach their next stop, and they weren't even in Calais yet. Other letters recount violent carriage accidents, wheels falling off, and the fear of travelling in icy or wet weather. Annabelle's governess, Miss Burney, was said to bury her face in her hands when she heard the scratching sound of the carriage horse's feet in frosty weather. You would think then that the new railway travel would come as something of a relief, but it could be just as risky, as the crew family knew all too well from the experience of their cousin Emma Blackburn. Cousin Emma, as she was generally known in the letters, had married the rector of Eccles near Liverpool. The parish was a large one, and by all accounts Emma was a very busy woman and a considerable help to her husband, overseeing schools and makeshift medical dispensaries for his many thousands of parishioners. In September 1830, however, Emma was looking forward to some time off. She and her husband had been invited to spend time with family in Liverpool to mark the official opening of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. It promised to be a very grand affair. Eight trains were to be hauled by George Stevenson's new locomotive engines, carrying 32 carriages of people, including the Duke of Wellington, then the Prime Minister, and many other VIPs. But, after arriving in Liverpool with her husband, a strange thing happened. According to an account recorded in the Cornhill magazine in 1884, Emma became convinced that she was needed at home and insisted on returning, taking a carriage and then a boat when the roads proved impassable. Emma was six months pregnant at the time, and this can't have been an easy journey, but nevertheless she persisted and reached Eccles on the evening of the 14th of September. She was therefore alone at the vicarage, but for her children and servants, the following morning, when a neighbour arrived with the alarming news that a mob was expected to come from Oldham that day to attack the train as it passed through three miles of unguarded railway line near Eccles. Their object was the Duke of Wellington, who might have been a popular war hero, but was proving to be a very unpopular Prime Minister. The neighbour was hoping to find the vicar, but found Emma instead who went ahead and roused 50 special constables to form a guard for the Duke on Eccles Bridge. But Emma was about to be involved in even more dramatic events. The opening of the Liverpool-Manchester is famous for being the launch of a pioneering railway, but also notorious for having the first widely reported railway passenger death. The Liverpool MP, William Huskisson, was run over by the rocket locomotive during a stop at Parkside when he crossed the tracks to speak to the Duke of Wellington. The engine crushed his leg, and a decision was taken to convey him to a nearby vicarage, which just happened to be Eccles. Emma's first knowledge of the accident came from seeing crowds of people and hearing shouts of an accident at the vicarage. She hurried home to find a sad procession, 
carrying Huskisson up her front path. While awaiting the doctors, Emma quickly took charge, nursing the stricken Huskisson, comforting his wife Emily, and opening her home to his friends and relations. A biography of Huskisson, published a year later, praises her efforts, saying, Kindness would, indeed, have been shown by any under such circumstances, but few could have been so capable as Mrs Blackburn to arrange with ready and affectionate attention, and to perform so quickly and with such perfect judgment, everything which it could be hoped might in any way minister to his assistance. Sadly, the wound proved fatal, and Huskisson died later the same day. But Mrs Huskisson never forgot Emma's kindness, sending the Blackburns an inscribed Bible in thanks, and making a yearly gift of money to the parish poor in her husband's memory. Hardly surprising, then, that so many of the earliest mentions of travel by railway in the letters focus on the risks and danger, even alongside the palpable excitement. Annabel's friend Ellen Tollett of Betley Hall in Shropshire seems positively fascinated by railway accidents, writing to tell Annabel in 1838 of a friend who was steaming on happily at a slow pace when the train engine broke down and she was thrown against the window and cut her face. In another letter a year later, she reports on a horrid collision in a tunnel, adding, How wonderful it is the knack the railway accidents have of killing nobody outright. There were other risks involved too, that I, as a modern passenger, had never even considered. A big surprise to me was discovering that wealthy passengers could load their own carriages onto the railway trucks in the early days and ride in those, meaning, of course, their own horse-drawn carriages, just without the horses. Annabelle's Aunt Emma finds this as concerning as I probably would. In 1838, she wrote to say that she would never use a station where they aren't used to the practice, as I should have dreaded the carriage not being properly corded on the truck. She remembered a previous journey in her own carriage, where she felt terrified, lest, when going at full speed, we should be loosed from our moorings and dashed to pieces. I think my favourite mention of this practice, though, is the story of the redoubtable Lady Brooke, who decided to take her first railway journey at the age of 80 in 1840, and, to Aunt Emma's horror, insisted upon going in her own carriage, although placed the last in the train and the wheels and springs not strapped to the railway truck at all. Aunt Emma concludes that she would really like to know that the old lady was not so shaken up by her first railway trip as never to undertake a second. Rail travel could, by all accounts, then, be something of an ordeal. There are numerous references to the fatigue of a railway journey. Some carriages had a tendency to jolt. In 1850, Annabel told Henrietta that she had suffered a carriage that shook him down like a chamber horse, while Aunt Emma complained of the constant jolts to her aching back on another journey. Another frequent complaint was that rail travel could make you feel giddy. In 1849, Henrietta complained of the fatigue and giddiness that were the after-effects of a long train journey. She later dubs this feeling railway restlessness, and it can only be cured by fresh air and a short walk. Writing in 1860, when she had her own family, Annabel calls travel by express train a tiring affair, adding that her young daughter had had to lie down because the train made her head go round like a mill. The train, in that case, reached the alarming speed of 65 miles per hour. But for all the risks and potential discomfort, 
there was no denying that the railway was also an exciting, even thrilling change, and that it opened up the world of the crews and their friends in whole new ways. Just a few months after Cousin Emma's rather traumatic introduction to the railway, Henrietta Crewe tried the Liverpool-Manchester railway for herself, getting on at Newton Le Willows to take a day trip to Liverpool with friends. Her experience of it is worth quoting in full from a letter to Annabel. On Thursday we went to Liverpool and by the railroad, may it please you ma'am, and returned by the same. We had to go five miles in a horse-drawn vehicle to meet the railroad at Newton, when in we popped to a machine about the length of five French diligines, fastened together by chains and holding around 120 people, and we steamed away our 16 miles in an hour and a quarter, which was very much longer than we ought to have been, as we met some carriages laden with goods from merchants, and as we could not pass, of course, had a considerable way to back. We went occasionally, but not for many minutes at a time, at a rate of 20 miles an hour. Had it not been when one looked out at window and observed the astonishing rapidity with which the objects seemed to dash past us, one could not possibly have been otherwise aware of the velocity with which we were going through the air. No jolt, no shake, nothing approaching to the sensation produced by galloping horses. The opening up of new railway lines is cause for celebration, especially when it links friends and family more close together. Henrietta wrote to Annabel especially in 1841 to tell her that now the railway was to open the whole way from London to Bath, Annabel could have no excuse not to visit, it being only a four-hour journey from Annabel's London front door to Henrietta's Bath one. The sisters also make frequent reference to their brother Hungerford having a favourite train, his beloved Express, which could take him directly and quickly from Crewe to London in an evening. As a wealthy lord, Hungerford naturally had a compartment to himself and travelled in some style, donning a special soft travelling cap for the journey and being known to share his evening glass of port with the railway staff on their rounds. As well as conveying people, the railway could also convey goods much more quickly, of course, making it easier and safer to send posts and order things from as far away as London. As soon as a station opened near her home in Staffordshire, Annabel's Aunt Emma began sending her niece fresh fruit, flowers and on one occasion even a chicken to London by train for her to enjoy. In return, the letters frequently request sports small specialist items and the latest Dickens serialised novel to be sent down from the capital by train. More than anything else, I was struck by how social travelling by railway could be. When I take a train, I'm usually doing it just to get somewhere faster, and I'd be quite surprised if I bumped into someone I knew at the station or in the carriage. But the world of the railway was much smaller in the 19th century, and enough of a novelty and a privilege to be a place to be seen. The letters are filled with little anecdotes about who was seen at the station and where they were going. In 1840, Aunt Emma reported that she saw the Chumleys at the station, going up to Scotland. On another occasion she saw Lady Wenlock with a lovely dog upon her knee and the Balfour set. While a Mr Bovary, who was travelling in the same train, stepped into Aunt Emma's carriage to visit her when they had to take a stop at Wolverton. Ellen Tollett writes that she was offered a copy of Punch magazine at Stafford Station by a very nice woman with an aristocratic countenance and an ugly husband. She then spotted Lord Talbot and his daughter Lady Georgina and was very gratified to learn they were also travelling on to London. In 
1847, Henrietta even arranged what she called a charming lark in the form of a railway trip to Bristol and back purely for the fun of it. She travels down with a friend and several Quakers and takes the opportunity to find out more about their religion and to discuss in depth what might happen next in the latest instalment of Dombey and Son by Charles Dickens. She calls it the most agreeable railway journey she ever had. Reading the letters and learning about the family inevitably led me to wonder what the crews made of crew and the pretty significant way it changed during their lifetimes. Interestingly, for all that Hungerford came to enjoy his evening express to London, he seems to have had nothing to do with the station in town being built there. The land was instead sold to the Grand Junction Railway Company by a local solicitor, who had bought the land from a long-ago crew. Hungerford is, however, given credit for the erection of possibly the world's first railway hotel, according to an 1839 guidebook anyway, and certainly he doesn't appear to have opposed the railway being built and the works in the towns expanded. In fact, he was remembered for saying he now had the easiest postal address in the world. It was just crew, crew, crew. On the other hand, however, I don't think he was especially fond of the noise and intrusion of the works to his otherwise lovely country estate. In old age, he was said to have told his coachman to drive him anywhere but the new town for his daily carriage rides, and he never became a patron of the new town, preferring to direct his patronage to the old town of Nantwich. His sisters also had mixed feelings about the countryside being so rapidly spoiled as they saw it, however convenient they may have found the result. Perhaps Hungerford's attitude is best summed up by a case reported in a local newspaper in 1845, when yet another railway surveyor wanted to cross Hungerford's estate. Tired of the recent intrusions, Hungerford said no, so the company hired up 100 men from Newcastle, armed with sticks, to force the issue. When word was sent up to the hall that a mob of men had gathered, Hungerford gave them permission to do the survey after all, rather than calling out his own tenantry to stop them. He might not have enjoyed all of the intrusion, but he also knew when he was beaten. The next train to arrive at platform 6 will be the 1343 Virgin Trains service to Liverpool Lime Street. Today, the name of Crewe is far more famous as a town than as a family, but I'm glad to say the Crews have not been entirely forgotten there. They live on in the survival of Crewe Hall, now a hotel, and of course in the name of the station in town, which was said in numerous contemporary guides and histories to have been given as a compliment to Lord Crewe. The station hotel, now rebuilt, is still called the Crewe Arms, and there is a Hungerford Road, Hungerford Lane, Hungerford Terrace, Hungerford Avenue and even a Hungerford Primary School. But perhaps most fitting, they survive from the arms of the town itself, which shows the white line of the crew family holding aloft the golden cog of industry. Thank you. Well, that's all for this time. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we've certainly enjoyed doing it. If you'd like to know more, you can contact us on Twitter at UOYBorthwick or email us via borthwick-institute at york.ac.uk. If you'd like to discover more about our collections, you can do so through york.ac.uk forward slash borthwick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe. And if you've ideas of what you'd like to hear in the future, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back soon with more archive stories. <laughs>